As Jordan said, we've been going um, through the book of Matthew here for a while, and we've been taking a slow nine-week walk up to Easter. And as we've been doing that, um, we're looking in a slow manner at all the things that Christ endured and all the things that he went through before uh, his death, burial, and, res- burial and resurrection. Uh, and today we'll start at 27. We'll look at his mocking and then look at his being crucified. But before, let's, let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this time that you have appointed that we can look into your word. I pray for myself, God, that you would help me speak with grace and conviction and love. I pray that you would speak through me and that it would be all from you and not my own. I pray that you would speak to me. And that everything I say or challenge any of us with would be things that I personally would want in my own life. I pray for us all, God, that you would come now and speak to this church and change us. That we would live more each day for your glory than we do. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to rank on a scale from 1 to 10 how you live for Christ, 1 would be the coldest and 10 would be red hot, how would you rank yourself? I think if most of us were honest, we would say, well, I'm not freezing. I love Jesus. Um, But truthfully, I don't live day to day with a red hot, passionate love for him either. So I guess I'm about a five. Some days, not so good, maybe about a three to four. Some days, pretty good, maybe about a six to seven. But on average, day to day, probably somewhere around a five, for honest. Revelation 3, 15 and 16, Jesus speaking to the church at Laodicea says, I know your works, you are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Christ is not near as honored if we live our entire lives lukewarm for him. If we live our entire lives at an average of about a five. He's not near as honored as he could be in our lives. But the truth is, as we go through our lives, we can get so distracted that the way we live is just kind of in the middle. Today, as we look at verses 27 through 37, we're going to have some graphic language. Now, this isn't gratuitous graphic language. As we talk about Jesus and as we talk about what he endured, it's not gratuitous. It's not without meaning. There is meaning. There is purpose of why I'm going to, um, as we look at the sufferings that he went through, use more graphic language Um, to talk about what it looked like and talk about what he experienced. There's a huge reason why. Um, And so I wanted to give us all that have weak stomachs, including myself, a uh, 
an initial warning that there's going to be some, some graphic language as we look at it. Because Christ's death was very, very graphic. Starting at verse 27 through 31, this particular section, um, it just says Jesus is mocked. Uh, what I want to do as we're, as we're going through, there's only two points. First, I want you to see King Jesus is mocked. Now, the reason why I'm putting king in there is because Matthew, as he's writing, is really wanting to highlight Jesus, Jesus as king here. Um, there's no question in our mind as he's doing this that he's wanting us to see that Jesus is king. As you look at this particular set of verses where he's mocked, you can see they put a crown on him. They, they're mocking him and as they're doing it, putting the crown of thorns on him. They're going to give him a reed kind of to be his um, scepter, and they're going to put a robe on him. But all three of these things are symbolic of something that a king would have. That's the first section. As you look at the second section, as it ends right there at verse 37, the, the, thing, the inscription they put above Jesus' cross as he's, on, as he's on the cross says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So in 27 through 37, there's no question as Jesus is being mocked and Jesus is being crucified, what Matthew is wanting us to see is that this is a king on a cross. And so as we're looking at this first section, it's really straightforward. Um, and as I've said, as we're going through this this passion narrative. And anytime you're doing narrative, um, it's, it's difficult to necessarily show you uh, uh, outlines that aren't necessarily historically based. So the outline here today is historically based, but hopefully um, as we look at that, we'll see some theology, we'll see some life application. But King Jesus is mocked in verses 27 through 31. King Jesus. Now let's look at um, verse 27 and following. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and gathered the whole battalion before him. So he's led away. This is Jesus' prediction that he gave to us in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 20. This is his third prediction. And uh, in, in Matthew, he, he gave another one uh, right at the beginning of this section in 26.1. But he says, And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and he took the twelve disciples aside. See, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And here we are to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he'll be raised on the third day. So this, everything that's happening right now, Christ said was going to happen. And then it says, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. So they, they took what he, was his possession, his clothes, um, off of him and put this scarlet robe on him. Now, we need to remember that the removing of clothes for Christ at this particular point was not something that was just kind of carefree. He had just been scourged. If you remember last week, scourged is when they tie him to a post and two people with whips, with bones and, and things like that would whip into there and they would dig into it, either his chest or his back and they would rip and many times exposing bone, exposing the intestines themselves and then they clothe him again. Very painful just to take these clothes back off of a body that's ripped apart. Um, so they strip these things off, having just been scourged. This is excruciating pain. Um, this is a, a scene of vicious, vicious mockery and suffering that Jesus is being exposed to. The Jews are mocking him and beating him in their trial. We see that in, verses, uh, in chapter 26, uh, really starting around verse 65 to 68. The Jews do it, and now the Romans are doing it. And the Romans are much more vicious at it than the Jews were, starting at verse 27. And following chapter 27, they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. 
And then in verse 28, 9, I'm sorry, they twisted together a crown of thorns. The crown of thorns was um, likely made of a, uh, a long kind of branch. It was called either palm spines or ankathus. Um, and as they do this, they take the head, pretty long spikes, and they twist together this crown of thorns, and they shove it down into his head so it won't, so it won't come out. And then it says, <clears throat> they put a scarlet robe and twisting together a crown of thorns. They shoved it on his head, or they put it on his head, and then they put a reed in his right hand. This particular reed in his right hand was something that a king, kings would hold things as they rule from their thrones. And this is them mocking him, giving him his royal scepter, if you will. And so as we're seeing this, um, we can see that the Isaiah uh, 53 overtones happening, the suffering servant. I mean, all these three things are symbolic of a king, a crown, a robe, and a scepter. But instead, all these things are actually bringing pain to him and mockery to him. These things aren't highlighting his kingship in the people that are doing it size. They're causing suffering. But for us, we're seeing the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, but we're also seeing the ruling and reigning Lord and King from Revelation 19, all kind of brought together in once. They're meaning it for mockery, but we're actually seeing his kingship being highlighted in these things. Um, so there's two pictures here in this particular text of a suffering servant and a king. Now, we can contrast this uh, as they're mocking him and saying, who knows what, um, from Revelation 19, where he is going to come back one day and rule and reign. Listen to this, and this is Revelation 19. Remember, he's the king here, and he's the king in Revelation 19. And just, just contrast these two moments where they're mocking him and he's letting them versus this particular moment where no one is going to mock him when he's king. In Revelation 19, it says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, one sitting on its on it called faithful and true and righteousness he judges and makes war his eyes are like flames of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has his name written that no one knows but himself he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood here he's also clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of the lord and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen white and pure were following on them with white horses and from his mouth comes a sword with which uh, to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh has his name written, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, in both pictures we see a king, and we can just see an amazing contrast between the two. And interestingly enough, just a chapter ago, in Matthew 26, verse 64, during the Jewish trial, Jesus looks right at Caiaphas and tells him about what I just read in Romans 19, Revelation 19. He said, I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So here we see this stark contrast between these two where in Matthew 27, he's a king, but he's being mocked. But in Revelation 19, he's a king and he is ruling and reigning and calling the shots in everything. But back to the text, it says they're twisting together a crown of thorns, putting on his head, and then they begin to kneel before him. Now, they will one day kneel before him without question. But here they're kneeling before him and mocking him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Hail, King of the Jews. And verse 30, and they spit on him. There's just some things that cross every culture. 
And no matter what culture you're in, you can go to certain countries and if you say something or if you do something here, it's no big deal. But if you go to Australia or if you go to Brazil or if you go back in time and do it, like it's a big deal, right? Over there, but it's not here. But spitting on someone is just, it crosses all cultures. Everyone from all time, even in this particular day in 2014, we know that if someone spits on someone, just it is the highest form of mockery. It is the highest form of disdain that someone can have. They're treating Jesus in this moment. I mean, consider, he is God, the King of Kings. They're treating him like he is a piece of trash. And then they take the reed away from him. It says they spit on him and they took the reed and struck him on the head. So they take the scepter of which they gave him, really the reed, and they begin to hit him. And as they hit him, again, this crown of thorns that is on his head, driving the, down into his head even more, causing even more pain. I mean, this is corrupt human nature at its most brutal and inhumane form. The Roman soldiers, this was their job. Their job was when someone was brought to be crucified, they knew that this particular person that's being crucified is someone that had set themselves up to go against Caesar. And so their job was to publicly humiliate this person to the greatest degree that they could as a demonstration to everybody that's present. The, the soldiers didn't even necessarily know who this was. They just know if they came to me, my job is to humiliate them as much as possible because they apparently have done something, against, maybe against Pilate, but definitely against Caesar. And because of that, I'm going to humiliate them with everything. So in some respects, you can say the soldiers don't really know what they're doing. But this is still the king of kings and the lords of lords. And we know that Pilate definitely knew. Everyone here is culpable. Everyone here is culpable. The Jews are culpable, the chief priests and elders. Pilate is culpable. Rome is culpable. Caesar is culpable. But we don't need to kind of throw all that culpability away and just say, look at them, I can't believe it. Because every single one of us here in this room as well is culpable. Every one of us. This is happening because of our sin. And they're mocking him. And they're taking this reed and they're striking him on the head. And verse 31 says, When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe they had and put his own clothes back on him and led him away to be crucified. Led him away to be crucified. This is here where actually he was likely given the cross beam of his own cross and had to begin carrying it away. And so we have a bloody man Blood running all down his face who had been scourged. Bones exposed, scourged, um, maybe even intestines exposed. Weak. We know in just a second he's so weak that he can't get very far. Uh, from where he was in the downtown quarters, he's going to make it likely to the city gates. They crucified people outside the city gates. He's going to get somewhere here. So he carried the cross for some distance and wasn't able to go anymore. And we know it in the next verse they're going to appoint Simon to take the rest of the way. He's very weak, bloody. And as far as we've gotten to this point here, we realize this is a very, very graphic scene. And I've, I've tried to highlight that for a reason. Not to just make you see, make you see uh, this picture in your mind and make you feel bad for Jesus. That's, that's not what I'm go- driving for here. Uh, not at all. 
In a lot of ways, this is one of the most beautiful things in the world because he's saving us. But I've been as graphic as I could be because in this moment, I want you to hopefully feel um, and see and understand just how non-majestic this man looks. Just consider this. This is the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And in this moment, if if we were present, when we look at him, no one, no one would look at this and say, this man looks like a king. The reason why I've tried to be as graphic is because I want us to understand that no person looked less than a king than this man in this particular moment than Jesus did on the surface. Prima facie, if you will. His flesh is exposed. His back and stomach were shredded. Blood's pouring out of his face. Crown is stuck into him. He's humiliated. He has spit in his beard. People are hitting him with a reed and punching him in the face and even slapping him in the face. Jesus did not look like a king here. Why would I want you to think about it this way? This is why. Spurgeon as he's looking at this picture, and he says, on the surface, this particular picture, he says, lacks beauty, and he calls it comeliness. This is just um, beauty, another word for beauty. There is no beauty here that we should desire this particular man if we were present. There's no, nothing pretty at all going on that we would say, oh, I really wish I could know this man and be a part of this man's life. Spurgeon draws out this comparison, and he says, um, as he's looking at this particular situation with Jesus. He draws it out to our present day, our comfortable, nominal Christianity. And this is what he says. The real Christ of today among men is unknown and unrecognized as much as he was among his own nation 1,800 years ago. The truth is, is that is the king. He doesn't look like a king to us at all, but he is. So in the same way, he didn't look like a king I'm afraid that a lot of us don't really look like and live like Christians. In the same way he didn't look like he was a king, if we look at it and we say, well, he's not really a king at all. I'm afraid that in the same way as we walk around with our lives, likely being a five, a lukewarm, that if people were to look upon us, looking at us, I'm I'm afraid that as our desire to fit in to our culture, that when they look at us, they would say the same thing about us. They don't look like anything special at all. Because I think that we desire to be a part of this world a little too much. Nowhere is it going to be ever possible that we are going to be cool and look cool for this culture. That's not what we're called to. I think that our most unchristlike moments is when we're trying to fit into the culture and look cool. We can be quite timid when it comes to talking about Jesus and being like Jesus because of the perception we have of others of how they might feel about us. Really, of people that aren't even our friends or people that we want to even know or For some reason, we feel like we need to impress them. So the truth is, on the surface, in this moment, Jesus didn't have any beauty. When in fact, 
what he was doing, the actual act that he was doing, which is giving his life to save the world, is the most beautiful work ever. It's the most beautiful thing ever, even though on the surface it didn't look like it. And I'm just trying to draw out a comparison to say, Jesus, King Jesus, was mocked. And I'm afraid that on the outside of our surface of our lives, if we're not careful, that people as they look would, would think, well, there's, there's nothing special that I perceive about Christianity whatsoever. It just looks like everything else. And so I'm wondering if this is the case. Maybe there's some real questions that we can stop and ask ourselves. Some real questions. Here they are. One, before I ask them, um, I've been praying that as we've been going through the service, it's a, it's a, the sermon, it's a little more direct than normal. It's a little more challenging than, than didactic, than teaching. Um, I've been praying for your hearts that as you hear these things, you're not going to be ticked at me and rebel against what I might be indicting you of, because I'm not at all. Um, if, if you feel indicted by me, it's, don't. If you're mad at me, don't. Like, I am listening to these questions and surveying my life just like I want you to do right now. I am sitting in the crowd with you and hopefully God is talking to us. I am not standing up here acting like I have it all together. What am I really doing with my life? What am I really doing if I really look lukewarm? If I really, people look at me and say, ah, you don't look any different than me. You don't look anything special whatsoever. Next question. Who am I really living for? Jesus or me? Next question. Am I so pretentious that I would be this unchristlike because of my need to be thought of as cool or to fit in? Next question. As Jesus lay there bleeding and spat upon, do I really see the depth of the beauty in that moment? Last question. If I really see the depth of the beauty in that moment, what must change in my life? What must change in my life? So the first point I had about Jesus being mocked is King Jesus is mocked. I want to rewrite that and and, and state it this way instead. The first point is this. King Jesus was mocked. Will you be also? As we look at him laying there, we realize that this is how we should be. By mocked, I mean considering these questions. But I say, will you be mocked? I mean literally quit playing the games that we play in this world of not being Christ-like in all things. That's what I mean. Will we stop playing the games? Jesus is playing no games here. Calvin, as he looks at this, looks at this moment that's happening to Christ. He says, this is proof which Christ gave to us all of his astonishing love towards us. This moment right here, as he's dragging a crossbeam, can barely walk, blood's flow. He's literally leaving a trail of blood behind him as he walks up. And he says, this is the proof positive which Christ gave to us of this astonishing love that he has toward us, that there is no humiliation, ignominy, or disgrace to which Jesus is not refusing to submit himself to for our salvation. He is willing to do anything to achieve his sons and daughters' salvation. 
We should not be neutral as we hear this. Neither should we be willing to um, not suffer any disgrace or endure anything if Christ wasn't. As we hear this, as I'm throwing out these particular questions and asking us to consider where we are and what are we really doing with our life, I, I just imagine that there's really one of two camps. There can't be a neutrality. There can't be a, a mushy middle here. We have to go one place or the other. We can, we can either go to one place, whereas I, I despise what I'm hearing. I despise that you say these things. I'm going to stick my, down my stakes and live down and, and live even more for myself now and refuse to acknowledge Jesus, or I'm going to go the other way where all of our knees buckle and bow down at the one true king and begin giving our lives to him. Like not allowing ourselves to live inside of this, as, as uh, Spurgeon said, um, the Christianity of of being nominal, the easy, comfortable, nominal Christianity, where he says the real Christ of today among men is known and unrecognized as much as he was among his own nation 1,800 years ago. They didn't know who he was. And he's saying, even today, we don't really know who Christ is. There's a book called The Reason for God by Tim Keller, and around page 56 or 7-ish, he talks about uh, fanatics, And as he's talking about fanatics, he's explaining this word fanatic. And he says, usually, as we think about this word fanatic about something, we we put that in a negative terms. We always think that a fanatic is someone that's infatuated or obsessed or captivated. And that's all they think about. That's everything they form their life about. You're a fanatic about that. And he says, well, I I just think that's the right word to talk about when we talk about someone who's a Christ follower. When we talk about a fanatic, they are to be, Christians are to be, fanatics for Jesus, obsessed with, infatuated, captivated. It's all they think about. It's everything they want to form and live their life around. It's not a negative thing at all. It's a positive thing. Christians should be fanatics about Jesus. So how can we begin then to start living or start again, begin or start again, living our lives wholly for God? How can we do that? The answer is in the next section. You must be crucified. So the second section here we see in verse 32 is King Jesus is crucified. Verse 32, as they went out, they found a man, a Cyrene, Simon by name. As they went out means that they're, they're leaving the city where they are and they're going outside of the city gates because that's where they crucified. They didn't want to crucify people inside the city gates. That was disgusting. They wanted it outside the city gates. And so as they went out, they're taking uh, Jesus and he's carrying his cross. They found a man uh, of Cyrene, Simon by name. Simon was literally chosen to carry Jesus's cross, which was already bloody. I mean, can you imagine being the one that carries the cross that Jesus died on? Likely he didn't know what was going on, but likely later he did. 
Luke or Mark, Mark describes this man Simon as the uh, father of Alexander and Rufus. Um, it's a good name for all of you who are pregnant. Rufus, you can grab that one. It's free. I don't think it's in the church right now. Um, anyway, in Acts 19.33, it refers to... Now remember, Mark says that. We know that John Mark is John Mark from Acts. And so we know that as it went on, Mark knew all these guys. Mark hung out with these guys. And Mark refers to this guy, Simon, of the father of Alexander and Rufus. And as you go into Acts, he's hanging out with Paul and all these particular people. Acts 19.33 refers to Alexander. And then Romans 16.13, John Mark was a contemporary of Paul, and Paul wrote Romans. John, uh, in Romans 16.13 refers to Rufus. And so we know likely that Simon's two sons became followers of Jesus. That's just not something that happens out of thin air. Likely. Maybe a disciple came to him. But I think that Simon, as he carried this man's cross, stood and probably watched the rest of what was going on and tried to figure out what's going on here. Why is it that everybody is so angry at this man? Why is it that they want to kill him? Why isn't he doing anything about it? Why isn't he yelling back at people? Why, when they mock him, does he just take it? And that he became someone that was a believer and was converted and shared his faith with his son. And on the way here, if you're standing on the side and you just walked up, you had no idea, you see a man, Simon, carrying a cross and Jesus walking beside him. And you think Simon is maybe, obviously Jesus is so beat up, you wouldn't, maybe you wouldn't think this. Simon's the one carrying his cross. In a lot of ways... Jesus is walking beside him, but Jesus is the one that's going to get on the cross. So in a lot of ways, Simon isn't carrying Jesus' cross. Simon's carrying his own cross, and Jesus is going to get on it. Simon's carrying our cross, and Jesus is going to get on it. This is a perfect picture of substitutionary atonement. Jesus is going to get on Simon's cross and substitute himself because Simon was the sinner and Christ was perfect. Spurgeon, as he's looking at Simon carrying this, he says, We need not envy Simon, for there is a cross for each of us to carry. Oh, that we were as willing to bear Christ's cross as Christ was willing to bear our sin on his cross. You wonder what the cross is that you need to to bear. Matthew's already told us back in chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Everyone knew what that meant at this particular time. Everyone knew when he says, take up your cross, take up the instrument of killing yourself and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, crucifies themselves for my sake, will find it. So here, they're walking up. We understand what's going on. And we're getting into the King Jesus was crucified. And we're asking the question. Remember the big question that's looming over this section as we're going is, how can I begin or start again living my life wholly for Christ? And I said, the answer is, you have to be crucified. So as we're going, it says they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. The place of the skull. This is either um, a mountain face that had something that looked like a skull or it's just where a lot of people were killed. Um, One of the two. We're not absolutely 100%. 
It's also called Calvary. Latin for Calva is skull. Um, so this is the place of the skull. And it says in verse 34, they offered him wine to drink. Now, if we just stop there, we think that's customary as they're offering him this wine. Um, usually it kind of took the edge off the pain a little bit. Uh, and we think, oh, a moment of compassion from the Romans. But look, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. Um, it was not a moment of compassion whatsoever. Um, it was instead another p- place of torment where they're offering him so, something so bitter it was undrinkable. And so Christ doesn't drink it, nor would he have drank it anyway. Spurgeon says um, he refused it because he was prepared to drink even to the last dreadful dregs the bitter cup of wrath, which was his people's due. He was willing to take the Lord's wrath all the way. And as he's offered this sour drink, um, and, and denies it. This was fulfilling prophecy from Psalm sixty nine twenty one. It says they gave him poison food, and from my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Um, it filled with gall. But when they tasted it, he wouldn't drink it. And then verse thirty five. These five words. Um, this short little sentence is filled with a world of meaning. And here it is: when they had crucified him. This is maybe the best and the worst sentence in the Bible. Worst because it's our Lord dying. Best because in this moment he's achieving our salvation. He doesn't die yet. So when it says, and when they had crucified him, this is the literal, like, putting him on the cross part. He's going to die in verse 50. Where he, uh, it says in verse 50, um, in a loud voice, he yields up his spirit. And we're actually going to get through verse 50 next week, leading us into Good Friday service and Easter. But he doesn't die yet, but they're crucifying him. They're, they're putting him on the cross. And Matthew succinctly narrates Jesus' crucifixion. He doesn't draw it out a whole lot. Um, that's not necessarily the main point. It's a horrific thing, no doubt. Um, but it's not the main point. The main point is the salvation. Matthew one twenty one. he came to save the people from their sins. That's the point, is that we're being saved. But being crucified was just a horrific, awful thing, even in the eyes of Jews. I think we've uh, mentioned this verse before, but in Deuteronomy 21 through 23, it says, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain on the tree all night, but you shall bury him in the same day. Why? For a man that's hanged on a tree is cursed by God. And so they just believe anybody that's crucified is cursed by God. And so they believe Jesus was cursed by God. They believe anybody that was crucified was abandoned by God. And so the fact that Jesus is being crucified in the eyes of the Jews that are beholding this, they think that he's a cursed man and an abandoned man. And so we have Jesus's crucifixion here that's happening. Jesus was, and it says, and when they crucified him, this means they nailed him to a crossbeam. They hoisted up the crossbeam upright. His feet were then nailed to the upright beam. And most men will die from asphyxiation or shock in this particular moment. Um, the way that they would breathe is that Jesus especially, he would push his lacerated back, which was scourged, up the beam upright to get high enough to be able to catch a breath. Um, but then 
the pain that was shooting into his feet and hands would be so painful that shock would hit his body and it would gyrate and he'd fall back down and he would have to only to repeat the process over and over and eventually he would succumb to suffocation because he wasn't able to push himself up and his lungs would eventually not get enough air and they would also be filled with fluid or blood and he would die. And so here they crucified him. And then in fulfilling um, prophecy from Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, that says, they divide my garments among them and for my cl- clothing they cast lots. It says, and, uh, and they divided his garments among them by casting lots. This means more than likely in the most humiliating sense, which we've read in, even in Philippians 2, that Christ was, and this was just the Roman way, likely crucified completely naked just to be humiliated even more. They took his clothes back off of him and cast lots for his belt and his sandals and his robe while he lays on the, or is on the cross completely naked. And they're gambling for his clothes. Calvin, I love this. This is a great quote. God determined that his own son should be stripped of his clothing so that we would be clothed with his righteousness and abundance of all good things. As Christ's clothing is taken off, we are the recipients of then of the clothing of the righteousness of Christ because he willingly and obediently endured the cross. And then it says in verse 36, they sat down and kept watch over him there. And I, for a long time, tried to figure out verse 36. What, why, why? What does this mean? They sat down and just kept watch over him there. Um, it was the soldier's job to just sit there until death occurred. Sometimes they would break their legs to try to make it happen faster so they couldn't lift themselves up any longer. That didn't happen to Christ. He, as it says in verse 50, yielded his spirit. He decided when he died. He decides when he's crucified, and he decides when he dies. Not them, which just makes him even more sovereignly awesome. Um, But here... Sometimes they were trying to prevent rescue. In some cases, people would be rescued off the cross. And people would literally live after they had been crucified. Like nailed to a cross, if they could take him down, they could actually live longer. And so they they stayed there, making sure no one could come and get Jesus off the cross. And then in verse 37, um, over his head, they put the charge against him. It was customary in this particular day to put a sign above the head. And all Rome would do, because they wanted to put on display for everybody, if you rebel against Rome, this is what happens to you. And they would put the crime above their head, whether it would be sedition or whatever, you know, that's rebelling against the, the, the government or killing or murder or whatever. They would put the crime above them. And they say, if you do that, this is what happens. And Rome ruled with a, uh, a very strong arm because of this. But over the top of Jesus, they didn't put... Those kinds of things. Sedition, whatever. Interestingly enough, in three languages, as John tells us in John 19.20, in Aramaic, in Greek, and in Latin, for everyone to see there. And of course, the Pharisees are having a big cow over here. Why are you saying that? You shouldn't say that he's the king of the Jews. You should say that he said he was the king of the Jews, not that he is the king of the Jews. And Pilate's like, I wrote what I wrote. It's just amazing. It says in verse 37, And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And it's interesting, as we are here now at verse 37, if you remember, in 2711, the first time Pilate 
meets Jesus in 2711, the first thing he asks is, are you the king of the Jews? And here we have just 26 verses later, whatever it is. um, Here we have Pilate putting over Jesus' head. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Matthew does not take long to get to this point. Pilate put this. He's asking in verse 11, and in verse 37, he's putting over his head. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. I don't say that he said he was particular people. I say that he is. Now, I don't know why Pilate did that. Um, I don't believe that Pilate was remorseful or repented or came to Christ. This is just how God sovereignly made it happen in human history. Now, as we get to this point, the question still is over us. We see King Jesus being crucified. And the question is, how am I going to live my life wholly for him? And we're going to rewrite number two, just like we rewrote number one. Jesus is mocked, will you be? King Jesus is crucified, will you be? That's how we're going to live our lives wholly for him. We are going to be crucified. And you're asking yourself, what does that mean, Fudd? I can't travel back 2,000 years and hop on that cross with Jesus and be crucified at the same time. What are you saying? This is what I'm saying. Paul actually gives us um, the exact answer in Galatians chapter 2. When we say we need to be crucified, Paul has already told us what that means in Galatians 2 verse 20. When we say Jesus was crucified, will you be? When we hear quotes like Bonhoeffer, it says when Christ calls a man, he, calls, he bids him to come and die. It all comes from Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. And whenever we say I need to be crucified. You say, I thought Christ was crucified for me, therefore I didn't have to be. And a lot of theological senses, yes, that's true. You don't have to experience the pain of death. However, Paul does not hide this fact from us, that we still have to reckon death to ourselves. Galatians 2.20 says it most expressly, and I think most explicitly for us, when we're saying, will you be crucified also like Christ, so that you can finally live your life wholly for him, instead of me and you living this kind of middle-of-the-road, lukewarm, instead of being a fanatic for him. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. You weren't nailed to the cross. He was for you. But Paul doesn't hide from the fact that we are still supposed to reckon ourselves or count ourselves as being crucified with him. I, in some way and somehow, was nailed up there with him. Not in a way that's absorbing the wrath of God and taking the sin for for man, but instead tacking myself up on there saying, I don't get to live for myself anymore. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When Jesus was nailed to the cross and died, I died if I'm a believer. And then he says this, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now that I'm still alive, even though I was crucified, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, Jesus loved me, and he gave himself for me. So when I say, Jesus was crucified, will you be? I'm not saying in some way that you're going to take on the sins of the world. Instead, I'm saying you have got to count yourself as crucified in that moment. Just like Jesus, because the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith. And faith means fanatic. Faith is not lukewarm. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We must reckon ourselves dead on the cross with Jesus. 
crucified with him. And if we do that, Galatians 5, 24 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so if we've crucified our flesh with Jesus on the cross, all the sinful passions, sinful desires are dead too. I know it still works itself out some, but on the whole, we should be wholly devoted unto Christ. I asked that question at the very beginning just so we'd all be honest. If you were to rate yourself one to five, where would you rate yourself? I didn't want to tip my hand. I want us to all be honest with our own selves right at the very beginning. Where would I really say I am in my walk with Jesus? So that when we hear all this, we would say, okay, if all that's true, then maybe something really does need to change. Maybe when I hear the questions, what am I really doing with my life? Who am I really living my life for? Am I so pretentious that I would be this unchristlike because I need to fit in with people instead of live for Jesus? Is Jesus bleeding and being spat on, in my mind, the, the be- most beautiful moment in all of human history? And if it is, then how must my life change? Like we hear those questions and I just, I think that we really need to consider. You may be like Pilate standing before Jesus and looking at him and saying, is he the king? Is he, is he really the king? So if you're not a believer and you're like Pilate and you're asking yourself like in verse 11, is he really the king? I'm just inviting you to trust him today. Repent of your sin. Come to Christ. I want to talk to you. You can become a Christian today and be saved forever and forgiven of all your sin. You may be like Pilate, wondering if he's really the king. But for Christians, for Christians, here's the way I want you to think about it. Not like Pilate, but differently. Is Jesus looking at us and thinking, I wonder when they're going to live like I'm the king. When are they going to live like I'm the king? Again, I'm not trying to put some kind of guilt trip on you. Not at all. I'm speaking to myself just as much as all of us. But I just, I feel like sometimes we don't just get tired of the game and not really living our lives the way that Christ wants us. Not seeing people come to Christ that if we really, every moment we're thinking about mission in our jobs and our families and our neighborhoods or when we really are tempted with sin, not really fighting it with all the power of the Holy Spirit through us, I think that we all can identify with that. And so, if you are a believer, Christ is beckoning you, not just to come and die, but also live and live like he's your king. We have a time of response here, and however you want, be obedient. You, you've got time here. If God, through his word, has spoken to us, we have time to think and pray and confess Take that time. Maybe you just need to sit and, and, and pray. If you need to come forward, maybe it's just in your mind, if I come forward as, a, as an outward demonstration, that, that seals the deal for me. Come forward and pray. We've got time here for you to, to do whatever you need to do in dealing with the Lord. I'll be right back here in the back. If you want to talk with me, I'd love to talk and pray with you.
I'm going to pray and then turn it over to Jordan. We'll continue in worshiping through song and just be obedient to the Spirit's leading. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. I pray that we would look to you now and give you all the glory, that we would ask the hard questions, but realize that all we get from you is grace. All you ever apply to us is mercy and grace. Conviction is not your disdain for us. Conviction is actually your love for us. Conviction is the opportunity for us to repent and dive headlong into an ocean of mercy and grace where we always are brought back to the foot of the cross, the best place to dwell, the place where we'll be most on mission, the place where we cannot be lukewarm, is at the foot of the cross. Be with us now, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.